the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It's a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The narration from that video is actually from Tim Keller. It's not his voice, but his words. And it lays the foundation for what we're going to do over the next four Sundays together. So if you have a Bible, you want to open up to the Gospel of John. If you've been coming over the last uh, few months, that's a different spot than we've been in. We're going to pause our Genesis series for a few weeks here and sort of sidestep a little bit in order to allow our Genesis framework to help guide us through Advent. Real briefly, Advent is the name of the season that runs for the four Sundays leading into Christmas. Today is the first of those Sundays. This year is a a little bit unique. It happens every six years or so, but Christmas Eve is a Sunday, which means that the fourth Sunday of Advent is, is, will be our Christmas Eve service. Uh, briefly, Advent is a Latin word just ported straight over into English. It simply means to arrive or to come. And so the season of Advent is when the church, Big C, pauses in order to anticipate and await the arrival of Jesus. To loop us back to our video during Advent, we pause and anticipate the arrival of the one to whom every story and every character in all of Scripture ultimately points. Rich Velotis says this. He says that the good news of Advent is not that we are faithful in our waiting, but that Jesus is faithful in his coming. And so Advent, when done correctly, helps the church prepare its heart and anticipate the celebration of Jesus's arrival, his coming, while also anticipating his future certain second arrival, second coming. And so that's what we'll be doing here over the next few weeks in our time together, creating space in our hearts to anticipate the faithful arrival of Jesus. And we'll be answering some questions. It could be that the answers to these questions are just reminders to you. It could be that the answers to these questions are answers to questions that you have about Jesus and Christianity that will hopefully be clarifying for you. Answers to questions like, who is Jesus and why did he come? and Why does that matter? Or what were the results? Or why are those results good news? As we answer those questions together, we're going to tie together some of the figures we've seen in our Genesis series with their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. The Old Testament is a unified story of a long-expected Messiah. You flip the page into the Gospels and you have the arrival of that Messiah. So we'll be taking New Testament Gospel accounts of Jesus' birth and seeing how the Gospel writers saw in Jesus the true and better fulfillment of the Old Testament. We'll see that Jesus is a long-expected victor who succeeds in all the places where Adam failed. We'll see that Jesus is a long-expected savior who provides a better salvation from judgment than the one that Noah provided. We'll see that Jesus is a long-expected mediator who provides and fulfills a better covenant relationship than the one that we have through Abraham or Moses or David. We'll see that Jesus is a long-expected child who's the true and better promised child of Abraham in a way that Isaac was not. And so we'll do that this morning by looking at John 
chapter 1. If you've got it open there in front of you, you just kind of look at it visually. Your Bible probably has a break at verse 18. The first 18 verses in the Gospel of John are the most elaborate sort of prologue to any of the books or letters in the New Testament. In those 18 verses, John lays out some of the themes of his gospel. It's a theme of light and darkness, of life and death, the necessity of belief, humanity's rejection of Jesus, the importance of abiding with Jesus. We're only going to look at the first five verses this morning. So if you have it open, I'm going to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your word. Certainly the the books in front of us, black letters on white pages, God, but more, more supremely than that, we thank you for the word, Jesus. who took on flesh and came and dwelled among us, who gave his life, died the death that our sin deserves, though he had no sin in himself. God, would you help us to anticipate and celebrate and cherish his arrival God, would you help us to worship more deeply as we're reminded of the truth of who he is? God, would you help us to anticipate with greater expectancy his future coming? Open our eyes to the truth and the beauty of your son, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What's so incredible about the way that John does this in the prologue to his book is that he doesn't just give you like a list of sort of disembodied propositional statements. He gives you introductory statements to a person, to Jesus. His origin story for Jesus differs significantly from the ones that we would traditionally sort of read and reflect upon at this time of year, those that are found in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And yet, he's laying out the same truths. And so, what are the things that we learn about Jesus in the opening verses of the Gospel of John? Well, we learn a number of things. First, that Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God. You've got to jump down a little bit to actually get the full picture here. But John tells you that in the beginning was the Word. And so, the first question you would ask is what does he mean by the Word? Why is it capitalized? You jump down to verse 14. The word, and then he's going to describe for you who that is, became flesh. Okay, so the word is a person and dwelt among us. The word is a person who at one time lived here on earth. We observed his glory. So the word is a person who dwelled here among us and was glorious in some form or fashion. 
We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father. That's Jesus, son of God. And then we're told that he was full of grace and truth. The word is Jesus, the son of God, the physical embodiment of the word of God in all its power, all its truth, all its grace made flesh come to dwell among humanity. We also see that Jesus is the active agent in God's work of creation. That's kind of a mouthful, but we're told in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. And then verse three, all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Understanding Genesis helps this make sense to us. The first three words of the Gospel of John are a very intentional linking back to the first three words in the whole of the Bible. In the beginning. The fourth word in Genesis is the word God. In the beginning, God. The fourth, fifth, and sixth words in the Gospel of John are in the beginning was the word. John wants you to understand he's talking about the same person. What was the creating force in the opening chapter of Genesis? It's God's word. God speaks and stuff happens. By the power of that word, everything comes into existence. And if Jesus is the embodiment of the word of God, then he's the creative force by which everything in the opening chapter of Genesis is happening. John comes right out and says that. Everything was created through him. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Look, John's not content to leave that as like a a sort of vague statement. Everything was created through him and then sort of sweep past that. He circles around to make sure that you really understand that apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. It would be like me taking you into a warehouse, flipping on the light and saying, all of this stuff is mine, flipping off the light and then walking back out. John doesn't want you to do that. John walks into the warehouse, flips on the light, and says, everything in here was created by Jesus. And then he says, that thing was created by Jesus, and that thing was created by Jesus, and that thing was created by Jesus. Those mountains over there were created by Jesus. That canyon over there was created by Jesus. That tree and 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 that tree were created by Jesus. The wind that you feel blowing across your face was created by Jesus. A platypus was created by Jesus. And that was a crazy one because Jesus took spare parts from other animals, threw them all together and said, platypus. Everything, not One thing that was created was created apart from him. He's very intentional to make sure that we understand every individual thing is made through, made by Jesus. Jesus is eternally existent. That would be the third thing you get out of this. In the beginning was the word. Parents, I want to like tee this up for you as you talk to your kids about Christmas. This isn't like, like preacher speak, Tim, Tim got on a soapbox. It is not accurate to talk about Christmas as the celebration of Jesus 
coming into existence. That is a heresy. And the verbiage matters. Christmas is the celebration of the eternally existent Son of God taking on flesh and coming to dwell among us. Jesus has always existed. John says, if you go back to the very dawn of history, the word, Jesus, was there. But he didn't just come into existence there either. The Son, Jesus, has eternally existed. We know this because of the link to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was God. God's not created God's already there and creates everything. And John says, in the beginning was the word. And then he goes on. And he lets you know that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Interesting combination of thoughts. I am Tim. I'm not with Tim. You are Bridget but you're not with Bridget. You can be one or the other. You can either be you or you could be someone else who is with you. John is tying together this mind-bending reality that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, but it would be insufficient to leave it at that. And so John tells you, and the word was God. The term Trinity does not appear anywhere in Scripture. And yet, in incredibly succinct form, John is laying out a foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity, that Jesus is God, completely inseparable from the very same essence as the Father and the Spirit, and yet separate, distinct person, such that they can dwell together. The word was with God means that they're distinct. The word was God means that they are one, not two, not three. Jesus is God and was with God until he, verse 14, was sent by God in the flesh. And then number five, Jesus is victorious over darkness. Verse four says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Life. John means eternal life there. That's one of the gospel of John's primary themes. When we think about eternal life, we think about quantity. Oh, eternal life is this quantity of life that I have beyond the seeming boundaries of my earthly or physical life. There's eternal life quantity that cannot be defined going forward forever and ever. But that's not all that eternal life is. Eternal life is not just the extension of this life. For John, eternal life is a supplanting of the empty life that you currently have. Eternal life is life in its truest and most wonderful form. Eternal life is not something that awaits us when our earthly life is over. Eternal life is something that you can have now by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Life. And he brings that life by shining light into darkness. John says that 
Light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The word for overcome there, the Greek word, is katalambano. That's way more fun than any English word to say. It means to grasp, to take hold of, to seize, or to overtake. John says that the life that Jesus brings into the world, he brings because he has a light that darkness cannot grasp. He has a light that darkness cannot seize or take hold of. Jesus has a light that darkness cannot overtake or overcome. Which would lead to what I think is a fair next question. Well, what are we talking about when we talk about darkness? What is the thing that can't seize or grasp or take hold of or overtake this light that Jesus has, which brings life? Martin Luther, when he's talking about atonement, says that it's like a magnificent duel between Christ and Satan in which Jesus resists Satan's power, wins a victory over sin, the devil, death, hell, the world, our flesh, and all evils. That's a pretty good uh, broad definition of the darkness. The sort of general Christian answer would be to say that darkness is anything that is opposed to God. Martin Luther drills down. Satan. That's where our mind goes first. And that's correct. Satan is the one who opposes God. And he does so by bringing sin into the world. We think about sin, we think about two things. In abstract reality, there is sin that exists and all of humanity has a sinful nature. But we're also talking about actual practical, like drill down into the the specific actions. That is also sin. The acts themselves are dark, darkness. Death and hell, those would be the consequences of sin. And then there's this really broad construct of the world. John Mark Comer defines as a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and societal norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture. That's the world. All of those things are seemingly sort of like outside of us. It's easy to kind of talk about like the devil or to talk about the world or to talk about hell and death and Jesus overcoming those things. But Martin Luther also included our flesh, which is a lot less comfortable to talk about. To say that there exists within me a darkness that needs to be overcome, that can only be overcome because Jesus brings life in the form of a light that darkness cannot grasp or take hold of. There is inside of me, inside of you, something that fundamentally opposes God. And we need something to overcome all of it, to overcome Satan, to overcome sin, to overcome death and hell, to overcome the world, to overcome the darkness that exists within us. And Jesus, John says, is victorious over the darkness in all of its forms because in him is a light that darkness cannot grasp or overtake, or overcome. What does any of this have to do with Genesis, other than the fact that John starts with, in the beginning? What John has laid out for us, and what he continues 
to lay out is a perfect explanation of all the ways in which Jesus is superior to Adam. In the beginning, Genesis says, was God. And then in chapters two and three, you get Adam and a serious problem. You take Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you take the first five verses of the Gospel of John, you put them together, and you've got this intentional depiction of Jesus coming to solve all of the problems that Adam has wrought in the world. Adam was the product of God's creating word. Jesus is the embodiment. He is the word. Adam was temporally existent. Jesus is eternally existent. Adam was human, and he ends up separated from God. Jesus is God and is with God. Adam succumbed to the darkness. Jesus is victorious over the darkness. Adam is the one that the serpent crushed. Jesus is the one who will crush the serpent. Jesus is the eternally existent, long expected, light bringing, life giving, victory winning, Son of God. And all of that matters because since the failure of Adam in the garden, humanity needed someone to be victorious in all of the ways that Adam was a failure. John Calvin says that part of the believer's knowledge of God recognizes that even though the tyrants of darkness combat us, ambush us, invade our peace, best us in combat, wary us, rout us, terrify us, sometimes wound us, they can never vanquish or crush us. Why? Because the victor has come. The long expected true and better Adam has come and made everything right. And now victory, by God's grace through faith in Jesus, can become ours. We spend this season anticipating the celebration of the arrival of the victor, Jesus, the eternally existent God-man, who's the embodiment of God's word, the active agent in creation, the bringer of light which darkness cannot grasp, take over, or overcome. He wins victory. I think it's easy to read the early chapters of Genesis and sort of have a picture in your head whereby the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to fall. And then as Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, the serpent slithers away in victory, saying, ha, I've won. I've convinced the pinnacle of creation to rebel against the creator. And yet, John wants you to know that right there in the beginning was the word. And as Adam and Eve walked away from the garden, he stomped on the back end of that serpent and he's holding it there until he takes on flesh and comes into the world and will crush that serpent's head. He's got it pinned to the ground and it can go nowhere. At Christmas, we are celebrating victory. And we've got a savior who was there at the beginning, who's all the creative force and power of God of the universe who's got light the darkness cannot overcome. And we put our garland and our Christmas tree up and we think, ah, Christmas. Like, we argue about 
What are the presents going to be for the grandkids? Or does everybody have an equal amount of stuff? Is the dollar amount the same? Or the number of presents the same? Or whatever the case might be. And none of that's like wrong or bad, but think about how trite it is. We're celebrating victory. Whether it's the start of the Christmas season for you at Halloween and like you get the last trick-or-treater over there, you close the door, you're consuming the candy and you're getting the Christmas decorations up and the Christmas music on or you wait till Thanksgiving because you've got self-control and you don't celebrate until one month before Christmas. Two months or one month, wherever it is that you begin. You're not anticipating Warm and fuzzy feelings that you get because the band plays certain nostalgia-inducing songs on Sunday morning and you get to sing them. You're not anticipating the beauty of decorations and sparkling lights. You're not anticipating the warmth of a house, you know, full of family. Like the, the wonderful feelings that you get as mom or grandma because all the kids and the grandkids are there. Look, 80% of the time you get the whole family there and you're like, this ain't so wonderful. You're not anticipating the joy of presence, whether it's giving or receiving them. You're anticipating victory. On Friday night, Melody and I went and saw the Messiah, the Kansas City Symphony puts on. Uh, The high point of the Messiah, the only piece of that work that most of us know is the Hallelujah Chorus. That when the Hallelujah Chorus plays, everybody stands up. And so... The Messiah in full is like three hours long. The version that most symphonies do is is closer to two hours. You would expect that the Hallelujah Chorus, like this triumphant part, would be the very last thing, but it's like an hour and 30 minutes in. And so everyone gets in, you know, there to the Kaufman Center, and the whole thing is beautiful, and you've got a little booklet full of lyrics. So I could see that, oh, I've never seen this before. The Hallelujah Chorus is not at the end. You can just follow along with the lyrics of this whole thing and the scriptures that accompany them right until you get to there. And everybody's waiting for the moment when the symphony will start playing, bum, 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 the whole place stands up, right? So for an hour and a half, I'm like, ah, it's coming. It's going to be so amazing. Like the the chorus and the soloists and the symphony, they were all so good. And then we finally get there, bum, 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 whole place stands up. I'm still sitting there. It's like I missed it. Like, ah, how did this happen? I spent an hour and a half waiting for this moment and then everybody stood up and I'm like looking around like, what's going on? Yeah, don't spend two months or a month thinking that the thing you're waiting for is the feeling in your house or the Christmas lights to sparkle the right way or certain weather to be present on Christmas morning. Because what will happen is that that will come and go, and you'll be sitting there on New Year's Eve thinking, how did I miss it? We had the Christmas decorations up on October 31st, and now it's gone, and somehow it completely passed me by. That's because you were anticipating the advent of the wrong thing. We're celebrating victory. The Christmas is an annual celebration of the victor's arrival. 
Christmas is the church's annual declaration that victory has come and that victory is a person. It's not a set of dusty propositions that somehow overcame in an ideological struggle or something like that. It's flesh and blood, human being, born in Bethlehem. Christmas is the annual reminder to the church and to the world that a man was born who would live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, resurrect and triumph over the power of sin, save his people from sin, and come back again one day to take us to a place that will be free from sin. That's what Christmas is. It's victory. On Monday last week, I got taken to a KU basketball game. In Lawrence. <clears throat> I'm a Missouri Tigers fan. Yeah. We get to Allen Fieldhouse, and uh, I've never been there before. In the lobby of the place, there's like a little shrine to all their national championships. And so it was the great joy of these KU fans that I was with to drag me through the area where like all of their national championship trophies are stored. We get in, there's, you know, 25, 30 minutes until the game actually starts. And one of the, uh, we're like, you know, we're facing the court. And one of the people that I'm with turns me around to face the banners. <laughs> and took great joy in letting me know all the hand wringing that took place when they had to go from five banners to six. You know, like we weren't sure there was enough space. <laughs> now we got it. And then a few minutes before the game tips off, they run this video montage. Barf. I mean, it is just like, <laughs> you know, great moments in KU history just flashing before your eyes. And I'll be honest, even as a Mizzou fan, it was impressive. I'm standing in there, you know, it's sold out for a very weak, like, you know, bi-directional Illinois State University or something like that. And I'm watching all of this and I'm thinking to myself, man, people come here to celebrate victory. That's what this place is about. You ever watched a basketball game with a KU fan? They're convinced they're going to lose. Y'all don't lose. You lose like three times a season. You're convinced you're going to lose every single game. No, like people go to Allen Fieldhouse because they, they want to be part of victory. Every single Sunday when you come in here, every single one, you show up to celebrate victory. That's what this place is about. Christmas is an annual declaration from the church that there is one banner that flies and it says eternal victory on it. And we gather together every single Sunday, not just four Sundays leading into Christmas, not just on Christmas, not just on Easter. We get together on Sundays. Sometimes we get together during the week. Why? To celebrate victory. That's what this place is all about. It's the reminder that victory's been won, and you don't need to fight to gain it anymore. You fight from it 
Christmas is a reminder to your sin that though you might wrestle with it every single day until the day that you die, it cannot, will not, does not win. It can't. Why? Because Jesus marched out of the grave and stomped on the head of the serpent, and now what you've got left is not darkness threatening to overcome the world. You've got the final flailings of an absolutely overwhelmed opponent who cannot overtake, grasp, or seize, or take hold of light that brings life. It's victory. Christmas is an annual whisper into your heart. That the darkness that you look around and think is just running rampant and uncontrolled is just a facade. Because the victor has come and the victor will come. And that darkness cannot win. Christmas is our theological booster shot that the baby that we celebrate isn't just a good moral example or a feel-good fairy tale but he is the eternally existent, long-expected, light-bringing, life-giving, victory-winning Son of God. Christmas is an annual proclamation to the world, a world that's shrouded in the darkness of spiritual blindness, that there is light and life available in one place and one place only. In Jesus, in the beauty of the reminder at Christmas, the beauty of the reminder to your heart and the beauty of the reminder that we proclaim to the world is that you do not have to climb up in order to get to him because he willingly came down in order to save you. Christmas is a celebration of victory. And so for 21 more days, Anticipate the right thing, the arrival of the victor. I'm going to end by just reading to you the introduction that John gives you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus is the long expected, victory winning son of God. Let's stand up and sing together.